welcome everyone to another fine episode of Malazan Podcast of the Fallen. I am your newbie host, Matt, here with my fantastic co-star, Nate. Oh, fantastic now. Hello. Yeah, you're still fantastic. Um, He's too, you're too fantastic. <laughs> Just as a side note, your video is now working. So, Oh, good. I mean, no one else is seeing my face but you, so at least it won't be too bad for you to watch. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any housekeeping or anything like that, so maybe we can just... Yeah, I mean, we're going to try a little... I think we we're talking about this, try a little yeah. different format in some aspects. Um, so those of you listening want to continue to provide some wonderful feedback, that'd be much appreciated. Yeah, we've realized recently that we're kind of just... I'm summarizing the chapter and then we're just talking about it and summarizing it kind of again and giving our very, very, very quick thoughts on the chapter yeah. and each scene. So we want to maybe we're going to have to put our deeper. thinking caps on. Yes. To actually think about what we're saying. So we will try to improve. And I feel like this week is a good way to do that because we dive into some there's some dark and heavy stuff in these chapters and also some huge things that happen. So it'll be good. Yeah, this will be fun. We, there's nothing else. I think I can just dive into chapter three here. Sweet. Chapter three. Felicin has offered her body to Beneth, the head slave, in exchange for favors for her companions, just as she did with the sailors on their ship. They walk through Skullcup, the mining town set in a pit, speaking to a guard about Durker's writings on the way. Felicin gives Beneth the vision of a threesome with Bula to distract him from wanting her to move in with him. She thinks on the revenge that she wants from Tavor. She returns to the house she shares with Heberic and Bowden, and she snaps at Heberic when he seems ungrateful for what Felicin has done by moving him to the fields. She is drunk and has started taking Durhang, which is an opiate. Bowden comes in later, and he and Heberic talk, excluding her. Felicin tears up, reflecting on the hardships that she's been through. Duerker is sitting on the seawall, wishing for the return of the fleet. Colt moves up beside him and informs him that Haborik will receive his instructions. A ship of red blades docks in the harbor, and the soldiers inside prepare to attack the market, but are confronted by Wiccans and the Hissar guard. As he and Colt walk to get wine, Colt tells Duerker that, the, that Coltane is working the seventh to death, engaging in mock battles that largely involve rescuing and protecting refugees. Duerker says if they win their objectives, he'll make sure the fist gives them a rest day. The next day, they win their engagement and earn it. Fiddler and Crocus speak in the garden courtyard of their inn. Fiddler and Kalam got into an argument over the Book of Drijna, and their paths will now separate. Crocus suspects that they brought Absalar along on the chance that the god of assassin skills are still inside her somewhere. Fiddler tells Crocus that he doesn't have the right to cast judgment on him, nor does he have the right to speak in behalf of Absalar. In the morning, Redblades question the trains about to depart the city about Kalam. Fiddler, in his disguise as a growl, passes inspection. Fiddler is feeling more alone than he has in years with the departure of the assassin. He gives Crocus some advice about dealing with the death of his uncle. Mappo watches a scarl pust attack a chimney with a broom, trying to get rid of spiders. He is slowly recovering from the diver spite, which contains a poison that can lead to madness and death. Pust gives the trail a very convoluted directions to where Icarium is. Once there, Mappo sees that Icarium is browsing novels in an ancient script he didn't know he'd recognize, one that reminds Mappo of a distant memory involving visitors to his tribe called the Nameless Ones. Icarium and Mappo set out to explore the temple, leaving Servant to his laundry. 
So there we are. Nothing happened, right? Next Some chapter. light, happy, fun yeah. chapter. Just rainbows and sunshine. That's all it was. Yeah. Um, first, we can uh, dive into Felicin. Oh, geez. I was thinking about this. Poor Felicin. Yeah. Um, I that, that about sums it up, I think. Poor Felicin. Like, like, literally, that's just like... I like you know the the stuff like shower thoughts. Yeah. Like cuz we were cuz like yesterday or a couple of days ago and you're like maybe we should change some things up. I was thinking, yeah. And so then like I hadn't, I'd read like up to chapter four and a half maybe by this point. And the thing that stuck out to me the most was Bellison and her story. I just remember like taking a shower Saturday or Sunday and I was just like, man, that's brutal. Uh-huh. That's a terrible life to be living right now. I can say that I think about Bellison a lot. <laughs> Even when I'm not reading Malazan, because holy crap. Oh, I know. Like, was she 15, 16, it says? She, she entered her 16th year, she says at one point during these chapters, which I think means that she's 15. Because isn't that how people used to tell birthdays? Like when you were about, when you were turning 15, you were entering your 16th year because your first year was from zero to one. I I I want to say so. I want to say that's right. So she's either 15 or 16. Yeah, really young. Like, I mean, granted, 18, 19, still really young, but yeah. Not just imagining her in this case. I mean, this teenager taken out of like a fairly comfortable lifestyle that she was born into, like, luck have it. She was born into that form of nobility to then be ripped out of that and like thrown into basically prostitution as the only way to survive at this point it's yep. pretty crappy and uh my sister is 16 so yeah yeah um but yeah, she did she did what she could and she yeah. provided for heberic and bowden and heberic doesn't seem too grateful yeah i think it's more he's i mean this is how i've interpreted it as he's more like I think grateful and understanding to a degree, but I think it's just more he's not happy by her situation. I want to say like yeah. her decisions and that she has chosen that path as the way to survive. Yeah. I and think so I those... think, oh, oh, I was just going to say, I think maybe he's not showing his gratitude or not as grateful just because he knows how he got it. And like what's taken to get it. Yeah. I almost get the sense that he feels a bit guilty that she felt like she needed to do that for them. Mm-hmm. And that something that's causing her, she may not realize it because when you're in the midst of abuse and spiraling downward, you don't really see it as being a terrible thing, but he sees how much pain it's inflicting on her. And she's the direct reason why he has an easier life in the slave camp now. Yeah. Pitting like her life, using her life, putting into some form of misery just to make his life a bit better. Mm-hmm. because yeah i was thinking about it like but i mean you gotta think like 16 years old like thinking back to a teenager you really don't I mean, granted i'm 22 so it's not like i know a ton still but like just even thinking back to a teenager you really don't know much you may think you know a lot but like yeah you don't you can't think of many options to get out of situations you're like it's either this or this and i think that's why she chose the path because she's like well this is this is all i got like this is what i can do to survive uh-huh granted it's not a great form but i mean for the most part she seems semi 
happy. I don't know if happy is the right word, but like content, like it could be worse type of thing. Yeah, so. I don't know. I don't know that she's actually content. I think she's forcing herself to be content because she's come That's to true. terms that this is her lot right now. And yeah. she and her she's still alive and that should that's enough for her. Revenge is keeping her going. Yeah. Finding a way to get back. I can see that. Where's that quote that I wanted? See, this is why I should make a note of where quotes are, because now I have to search for it. I started doing that with sticky notes in the back and gardens of the moon. I would mark a page and say what the quote. I think you said the quote. Okay, so this is what Fellison is thinking as she enters the inn with Beneth, who's the slave that's like taking her in. There's no point in thinking about tomorrow, just the next hour, each hour. Stay alive, Fellison, and live well if you can. One day you'll find yourself face to face with your sister, and an ocean of blood pouring from Tavor's veins won't be enough, although all they hold will suffice. Stay alive, girl, that's all you must do. Survive each hour, the next hour. I feel like that's the mindset you have to adopt. There, there's something like, it's kind of a terrible thing that she's wishing for. But yeah. th- at the same time, there's something so powerful about the line, an ocean of blood pouring from Tavor's veins won't be enough, though all that they hold will suffice. Yeah, weird to think about. It just, it shows the depth that it goes inside her, I think. Yeah, like she wants that eternal suffering in the sense. Yeah. Because, I mean, an ocean's pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> she knows she crossed an ocean to get here. Yeah. Yeah, no, she... It's it's a quite... Yeah, it's not one of those situations where I think, wow, this isn't, ter- like, too bad. It's like, no, this is absolutely awful. Because, I mean, the guy she's with is, like, just terrible. Uh-huh. Like, just some drunk, like thug basically yeah well he's the head slave because he's bigger and meaner than all the other slaves so yeah and he kind of just uses her as like a way to buy other people off which is kind of sad uh-huh and so i mean you think like in the conversation a little bit on when she's talking with um the historian what's his name oh. fenner's priest Haboric. Haboric. you can see you kind of see why more she turns to some of those drugs of like the Durhang stuff. It's just kind of like trying to get lost and escape somehow, which is yeah. rather unfortunate. And I mean, Haboric understands why she is so focused on revenge and her sister and hating life. Yeah. Because he says that if Fenner hears his prayers, then Tavor's punishment will exceed what she's done. Yeah. I don't know. I... I really liked Felison's storyline because I feel like Erickson explores her side of it and the side of her companions that are watching her and there's no like victim blaming or shaming or hmm. anything like that just showing that this is what she's had to do. Yeah, which I think is a really great point to bring up. Like he balances the point of views and the character development on both sides fairly well. Like, she's just more accepted the fact this is her lot, and mm-hmm. um, Borg is like, yeah, no, this sucks. Like, I wish there was more I could do to help you. And he doesn't turn to her and be like, wow, you're terrible. Like, kind of like disown her or push her away. It's more just like, if there's something I could do, I'd do it. Yeah, and uh, she lashes out at Haboric and Bowden because it's all she has left. 
it's kind of the only release that she has. And when you're in a situation, I don't want to say when you're in a situation like that, because, but I've seen people in a, in abusive relationships before. Mm. And I've never been in like a romantic abusive relationship, but I've had an emotionally abusive friend or two before. And when you're in that kind of relationship with someone, you can't see your way out and the abuse becomes your new normal until you can't really see your way out of it. Yeah, that's true. By the way, I am not trying to compare my abusive relationships with friends to anyone that's had an abusive romantic partner or what Felicin is going through. Yeah, which is just really sad to see how this, how her life has taken such a sharp turn. Yeah. And it makes me think back to like when you first started going towards the slave ship, she's like, I have yet to see how tough this is going to be and how like horrible this is going to be. I guess some of the quote unquote lighter stuff in these sections Mm -hmm. is we learn in a flashback about Heborik gives us his thoughts on Otatero. Oh yeah, that's right. Because it, it, isn't it this chapter chapter discusses the island a bit and the Otatero's in the limestone yeah, right. that Otaderol, the bane of magic, was born of magic. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny because I was like, huh, I wonder, like, I just wonder more of the creation of it because it sounded like it was a very powerful form of magic to, because they, they talk about it like it's like uh, veins, like magical veins in the limestone. Yeah. Or something. Like, I'm trying to remember the description, but along those lines. Yeah, and maybe that's what Turek was researching about the Otaderol as well. I mean, he is a historian. He likes to he likes to learn about his things. Yeah, I get the feeling both Dewerker and Haborik are not just historians, but like jack of all trades scholars. Yeah, they they know a lot cuz I mean, I feel like a historian in this time or in this kind of context means like they know a lot of history, but like it's a very general sense of history. Like it's more like a us, like they don't necessarily research to progress it's researching the past in a way which i mean that's what a historian is but i feel like it's they dive into science they dive into politics they dive into mm-hmm. just every little detail so yeah well duerger is the imperial historian so his primary concern is with the history of the malazan empire so it makes sense that he would want to research otaderol because ever since the empire was created they've been sending prisoners there yeah uh, speaking of history, the uh, guard that Felicin and Beneth talked to on their way out of the the mining shaft, the he quotes Duerker and says, "History comforts the dull-witted." So, I mean, it makes sense. The more you learn about history, the more atrocities you see that humanity has committed. I know, which I think is kind of ironic, considering how no one learns from history. Mm-hmm. And to try and stop those atrocities, it's more like, oh, let's not pay attention. It doesn't matter. And it, or it's like they, they, um, what's the word? Have such like a narrow scope and are kind of blinded by everything else and like just narrowing on one little point without any context of yeah. history and romanticize it or something like that. Yeah. Well, and this might be fun for some of our foreign listeners, but especially here in America. We have a big problem of ignoring the bad parts of our history. Oh, yeah. Which I mean, I don't think I learned about the Trail of Tears and what the American government did to the Native Americans until I was in high school. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
I I think it's not a bad thing though to hold on to that till a bit later, just for like maturity reasons. Like not everyone is at the same level in eighth and seventh grade, but yeah, because I I mean I remember in fifth grade learning about like um what's the what's the kid's name the kid that got like lynched because he like said something in a store they're like they made a movie about it recently. yeah there was just a his movie. mother emmett till Is emmett till it? yeah i think i remember learning about in fifth grade and just like because there's a book called um we were there or something it was like the stories of kids in like history and showed their view of things like during the civil war revolutionary war civil era things like that or civil rights movement i guess and so i remember learning about i guess some darker stuff like that but not necessarily like the trail of tears and the terrible things that have been committed. Yeah. It's still a big systematic problem, but yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is just that nobody learns anything if we don't acknowledge it and tell everyone that it happened. And then those that don't learn history are doomed to repeat themselves. So exactly. Um, anything. Not much else here that I can think of or remember. Anything else you have? I mean, we could talk forever, I feel like, about Fellison. Oh, yeah, I've for seen sure. so many, like, and we, we will continue to talk more about Fellison during the book, so. I mean, she pops up a little bit later with some yeah. more atrocious things happening to her. Yeah, but, but I, just, I have nothing but empathy for her. She was put in an impossible situation and did what she could. Yep, it's true. Uh, but moving on, we have um, Dewerker and Culp on the seawall. Some red blades dock in the Hisar Harbor, and they're about to attack the market. This was like a more intense scene, but I thought it was pretty funny overall. Just because it's like you got these red blades coming out thinking they're all that, and then the Wiccans look at him like, no, let's fight. Like, bring it. We'll take you all on. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much and i think cope even points it out at the end of the scene duiker says and coltane has just showed that the wiccans are willing to put down their lives to save the citizens of the city or cope says that and duiker says uh i think the wiccans just wanted a fight well let's help the citizens see it the other way i know like once again it remind, reminds me of a. Uh... Oh, totally blanking on the name the game is thrones oh the dothraki the dothraki and they're just like lust for battle and combat. There's such a parallel that I think is funny. Yeah, I think they're definitely not the same because there's some cultural no. differences and things, but it's a very strong, I guess, parallel you can make yeah. between them. Which uh, I think it just makes it more entertaining to read them. But yeah. no, I thought it was funny because the Red Blades, one, they mentioned because he's like, Culp, you could do something. He's like, I think they have Otaderol armor or something or they have links of it in it. Yeah, and one of the leaders does have Otadoral links in his armor. I was like, dang, that's pretty smart. It's like Mithril. So then what does Culp do? The two leaders are brothers, so he antagonizes one brother, trying to get them to challenge the other to a duel. And then he says, and no matter who would win, that's one less sea troll brother in the world, and that's a good thing. (laughs) So smart, though. Especially when, like, combative brothers like that. That would be so easy. I thought it was funny though that the red blades hopped off the ship and like immediately started looking like they're gonna start looting or something. Yeah, well, I mean, we saw the troop of this is in Hissar, but we saw the troop of red blades in Erlatan just slaughtering people in the square. So they're obviously very eager to just go ahead and start killing. Yeah, 
which is unfortunate. Shows uh shows the kind of people they are. Yeah, when uh being zealous for a cause takes you way too far. Exactly. And it it gets even more complicated when you remember that all of the red blades are seven cities natives that have just turned to the empire. I know. I was I was thinking that I was reading that I was like, wait, isn't this the group like from this place? Like wouldn't they want to like yep. be a little more protective? But I guess not. They're the militia group that has completely switched loyalties to the Empire. How unfortunate. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you you get those in every civil it's war. True. I don't know if this necessarily qualifies as a civil war, since it's the citizens that feel they've been oppressed versus the Empire. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know what qualifies as a civil war, but they're more or less cooperating together yeah, to a certain I extent, mean, I feel like. So... I, I mean, like, we don't think of the American Revolution as a civil war, even though there were absolutely Americans that fought on the side of the British Empire. Yeah. I mean, if if you think about it as well, it was British people fighting British people. So technically, yes, I think on technicality. But <laughs> granted, I'm no historian and know we are all no the technical terms. We are 20-something dudes. Yep. Just sharing our thoughts on this wonderful book. <laughs> Which is not an excuse for ignorance, but we are ignorant in some things. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're just super smart in every other way. But <laughs> but history, nah. Nah, we don't know anything about it. I can do Einstein-level calculus, but oh, history, exactly. I'm dumb. Yeah, theoretical physics, in my sleep. I'm basically smarter than Iron Man. I have discovered that there's real vibranium. I made a suit out of it. Oh. Yeah, that's how I get to work every day now. I was going to say, you should wear that to work. Yeah, I'll wear it next time I come in. That would be an attraction to get patients. Oh, yeah. Like, come see our new suit and for your dress. One of our technicians is a genius and made an Iron Man suit. Want to be cured of anything? Come to us. No, this has been approved by the FDA, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, Other than that, we just... The other aspect of this scene is that uh, Coltane is working the 7th Army half to death. Mm, that's or, right. He's teaching them how to rescue and protect refugees. I wonder why. I know. I was really curious. I think it's cool, though. Like, I, I genuinely thought that, like, if it goes well, like, if this doesn't turn how I feel like a lot of things turn. But I think it's really cool of him to be like, this is, like, your job. You're going to help these people. Like, there can't be an empire or a nation without people. Yeah. And you can't just have a military. That's not how this works. So I thought it was pretty, pretty cool of him to do. Yeah, it's a really smart idea to teach your army how to do that in advance so that yeah. if a rebellion does break out, they're not panicking and just worried about saving the army. Yeah, they can actually help the population, which I mean, you kind of need a population to have an army. You kind of need farmers and merchants and all that. Because if not, it's not, it's not really how a functioning army it's going to work because it's like, what are you fighting for anyways? Your own pride? Isn't that just like, a, no, that's not a mercenary group. They fight for money. I don't even know what that is at that point. Emotional mercenaries. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> fighting for their emotions, their pride. Yeah, but Dewicker says that, hey, if you guys win your objectives, I will make sure that Coltane gives you guys a rest day. And then the next day, they win. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was interesting, though, that they... I mentioned it somewhere. I don't know if it's necessarily like 
legitimate combat, but like they're talking about injuries, like broken bones and stuff, or like yeah. Things. So it's and they have like the mages that just come in and heal them up. Yeah. So Culp is making a bunch of illusions and making chaos, and because they're practicing in an abandoned city, which Coltana sent the sappers or the engineers in to have them build it up a bit. So there's a bunch of blind corners and alleys and stuff, and each squad mm-hmm. is given an objective. And they're fighting with blunted weapons, but like Duerker makes the comment about Coltane riding in with his lancers that it's wrapped in a ton of cloth and it's blunted, but anything more than a glancing blow is going to break your arm. Yeah. But when you have magical healing, you can beat your army up and have them ready for combat the next day. Crazy thing about it's like you can kill, they can die as many times as they want in the simulation, but then when they're on an actual battlefield, they can't be revived. Also, I love the uh, humor between Duerker and Bolt because Bolt calls Coltane calls Bolt uncle. Yeah. And Duerker says he called you uncle. Yeah, he did. Are you? Am I what? He's like, I don't get the Wiccan sarcasm yet or sense of humor. Yeah, I love Bolt. He's just such a cranky old man, but yet has this dry humor. Oh, it's great. Uh, let's see. Anything else about those scenes? Um. Let's try to get more, but not these scenes. Okay, perfect. Um, and then we can just launch into Fiddler and the gang. Uh, Fiddler and Crocus have a bit of an argument in the courtyard in. Of course they do. Freaking Crocus. I feel like Crocus is somewhat justified in this situation, wondering what the hell is going on. No, he shouldn't know. He's a teenager. A newlywed at that. He shouldn't know anything. <laughs> well, not actually newlywed. <laughs> But no, I know. Yeah, no, I, I think he's totally justified in this case because he's like, where's he going? Don't worry about it. What do you mean? Don't worry about it. So like, well, I just want to know what's going on. Yeah, Crocus says, I guess you never expected him, Kalam, to pull rank on you like that. Is that what it was? That's what it seemed like. And Fiddler's like, you don't know the half of what her relationship is. He's like, that's not how this works. When your comrades like this, I mean, and then Crocus says, and if Kalam doesn't make it, you go after Lucene yourself, a glorified ditch digger, and long in the tooth at that. You hardly inspire confidence, Fiddler. <laughs> Fiddler's like, don't push me. A few years pilfering purses on Drujistan streets doesn't qualify you to cast judgment on me. Yeah, I th- <laughs> Crocus is just weighing over his head. I feel like sometimes. He's like the he's like the young little brother that's trying to insult you but can't. Yeah, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is uh, yeah, because I mean I think it's interesting though that he talks about like the book and the Shaikh. Yeah, he lets him in on that. Yeah, that Kalam really does have torn loyalties here between his homeland and the Empire, and he's still loyal to the Empire. It seems just not to Lassine. Yeah, which is. Curious. Do you know much about this Grawl people? Because that's who they're impersonating as, so I was a bit curious on. No, so basically what we get about the Grawl people is what we get in these chapters from Fiddler impersonating them. Okay. Basically, they just have a stereotype of being mean-spirited, insulting people, um, loving to challenge. Okay. Uh, They love bets and competition, so. Gotcha. That makes a lot more sense then. Because I knew he was like, he kept challenging people and like insulting them and stuff like that. But I was kind of confused. I was like, is this just some local group then? 
that has that. Yeah, they're just a local tribe. Gotcha. Another tribe of, I think, horse warriors. So I sound like because he has a pretty aggressive horse. Yeah. That's uh, willing to fight. Just kind of. Uh huh. Cool. I feel like you never see that. Horses are always like that. That side part in every story where it's like, oh, a horse. I think the most interesting horse I've seen in fantasy was, uh, so far, was in Lord of the Rings, Bill, Sam's horse oh. <laughs> from Bree. <laughs> I don't know. Gandalf's horse that's literally the Lord of all horses is pretty cool, too. Shadow facts, but there wasn't, there was just a steed. There wasn't much character there. I mean, you got Bill. Survives abusive owner. He travels all the way back. He travels with the ponies. Yeah. I mean, I will say the Wheel of Time community is obsessed with a horse called Bella. Mm. And I think Bella is incredibly overrated. Most of it is just a meme. People ah. hail Bella. And I'm like, it's a horse. Yeah. I granted. Oh, geez. It's not even that late. <laughs> I'm yawning way too much. No, granted, uh... Actually, one of the cool horses is in Stormlight. That's another one. Do you remember? Nope. The like the big horses that they ride, the Rishadiums, I think they're called. No, I, I that shows you how much I remember about Stormlight Archive. That's I say, that I remember the big events, like the huge, massive events, and not much else. Yeah, no, I just remember them because they were they were rather interesting. Like it fit the story. Like it was a necessary thing but i still okay. stand by bill he was a cool horse but so it's cool to see like uh another horse in um in this story that's like not just some ride like it has yeah some character building to it granted it's a few sentences but still adds more to the world which i think is cool yep uh in the morning we get fiddler and gang they're about to leave fiddler Passes inspection from a red blade by insulting him. Just acting like a girl. I think it's so funny. Just gets by just by insulting people. Yeah. Speaking of the horse, Fiddler tells his horse, show me some manners, you ugly bastard, or you'll live to forget it. Or to regret it, not to forget it. Yeah, better show some manners. Um, I also really like the advice that Fiddler gives Crocus about Mammoth and dealing with his death. Because Crocus says that he kind of felt like Mammoth was with him when Moby was there. Because Moby in the morning is gone, and they don't know where he is. And that's so, the little bat thing. Yeah, right? that's the Bokoral, the same creature that's in Iskarl Pust's temple. That's right. They're like a bat monkey or something. That's yeah. how I <laughs> Without tails and with like human-like faces. Oh, weird. I didn't know um, how to human-like faces. Well, it, it doesn't say that they're exactly human-like, but eerily human like you're approaching it gotcha uh but mm. fiddler says was your uncle a good man before the tyrant took him and crocus nods and fiddler says then he's with you still yeah I, that was good advice to remember the good parts of him because i mean fiddler was like not fiddler um crocus mentioned he's like i didn't realize he was so powerful like he could have done so much more he, he was always locked up with um his books and his study which i kind of feel for crocus have been like if you like after your uncle dies and you realize how cool they were, I feel yeah. like that'd be pretty tough because you're just sitting there like, dang, I wish I could have got to know him better and stop being such like a punk teenager or something. 
Yeah, but as kind of a counter to that, Fiddler says, you should realize an uncle who took care of you and loved you is more important than his being a high priest. That's true. I mean, I, st- I still think that's like very important that like he looked out for him, but I still think it would have been cool if Crocus was able to learn a little more like his powers eventually. I guess it was probably cut short before that could happen, but yeah, still, I think it's always sad when you look back and think, wow, there's so much more I could have learned, but now it's the opportunity has passed. Mm-hmm. Crocus makes the point of like, like he could have owned an estate. He could have sat on the council and Fiddler's like, I am not ready for a discussion about this. And so he says, did she kick you up here for being so moody? <laughs> and just kicks him back and they just start writing along. And instead of writing together, it's like three separate people writing now. I know. Crocus is like, never mind. And then it's insulted. Fiddler's curse at the end. I love the curses in Malazan. Hood's balls. Hood is the god of death. Yeah, because he, he looks back and sees Absolar and she's just like staring at him. Yeah. He's like, oh, great. Just Hood's balls. The god of death's balls. I love it how the they curse. always they, they use Hood's name and his like just anything dealing with hood that's a curse which yeah, i think is so pretty funny. much like no other no other god just hood it seems like i mean yeah. you do see some others but like he is the main he is the top yeah i think we've seen like fenner's hoof and tog's feet oh yeah um and that's Beru right. blessed or something like that but hood is definitely the main one because i mean he's he's the god of death Every, he's the literal god of death. Everyone's going to meet him one day. So yeah. he's like the most universal god there is. Which now that talking about makes me wonder more of his um, like his backstory, I guess. Like how long he's been around. Because we see like, I guess revealed a little later on, but like not all the gods have been here type of thing. Yeah, Like they've been brought up, created. So it makes me wonder if Hood's the god of death, he must, he must be one of the longest standing gods. But makes me wonder... His creation, his backstory, a little more. Yeah, I'll just raffo all of that. I assume so, but like, I was just thinking, like, huh? Oh, I wonder, yeah, for sure. I wonder what, because it's just like you get these different levels, like from Animander Rake, he talks about, like, oh, yeah, I knew him, or it's like, yeah, no, we we're not from this world or something, or uh-huh. we came from a different war, and like just the, the sheer length of time and like the first beings and stuff. And then you've got Kroll, who's an elder god, which implies that he's older than lots of the other gods. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more to learn about all of that. Yeah. Um, and then we get Mapo and Ikarium in Iskaropust's temple. That was a funny scene. What do you think of Iskaropust now that you've gotten more than one scene with him? Such a quirky oddball. He's di- he's so shady as well. So shady. That's why I see yeah. him. Like, he's obviously hiding something. The High Priest of Shadow is shady. He's more shadowy, I guess, but... <laughs> no, because then he just, like, rambles on, like, weirdly. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that. Like, he just has, like, these weird tangents. I was like, this is... What is this? And at one point, Mapo describes, like, he has to shake himself out of it because his rambles, like, put him into a, almost a trance. Which is just so weird. But then... <laughs> that was funny. He's, like, trying to clear out the chimney with like some stumpy broom or something yeah like what the what are you doing because it sounds like this temple's been abandoned for a hot minute and yep. so he just 
shows up and is like, all right, time to clean the place. Yeah, this is the new Temple of Shadow. Yeah. But well, and Mappo says, Have you resided here long, High Priest? No idea. Irrelevant. Like, you can't get a straight answer out of him as well. The nuns left but a handful of books, tomes devoted to pleasuring themselves. Best read in bed, I find. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Forgot about that part. <laughs> oh, and then uh, he gives Mappo directions to the library and is like, go this far, turn right, turn right, turn right, turn right again, turn right, and you're there. And Mappo's like, or I could turn left and go this far and get there. Yeah. Well, because not only that, he's like, turn right. He's like, you walk 15 paces, then you turn left. Then you walk 39 paces, you turn right. Then mm-hmm. you walk another 20 paces and you turn left. <laughs> yeah, it's right every time. Turn right, proceed 34 paces. Turn right again, 12 paces. Then through door on the right, 35 paces. Through another archway on right, 11 paces. Turn right one last time, 15 paces. Enter the door on the right. Or turn left, 19 paces. I, I shall take the short route then, if you must. He said he's such a quirky dude. I want him and Krupp to meet. I want to see a conversation <laughs> between these two. They're semi-similar. They're similar enough, but different enough that I'm like, I want to see what happens here. <laughs> Funny enough, I think that's one of the first things on every like podcast I would listen to. I think that's one of the first things people say about Pust is I want a conversation with him and Krupp. Oh, yeah. like it, I feel like that's just a given. As soon as you read it, you're like, oh. We need a conversation between these two. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Oh, we also have Mappo finding a carrium, reading books about like total nonsense subjects, and they're written in a script that he doesn't know that a carrion would recognize, and one that brings up some memories for Mappo. Yep. Brings up the when he was a post transporting the elders or something. Yeah, he was like a guard transporting elders, and they were met by a group that called themselves the Nameless Ones. That's right. I don't remember too much what happened there. Were they were they attacked? They weren't attacked, were they? No, they, they just, just like met and of, talked. Yeah, like I don't remember anything violent happening. But no, I thought because this is the part where I think it talks about like their farming books, like their books on like farming and irrigation or something, right? And yeah. And he mentions like the paper they're written on, Vellium or something, or Vellum. I like, think what? so, yeah. What? That these are such rich paper and text, you know? Yeah, like trivial books. Like Yeah. To be written like this. And he's like, This must have been a really advanced civilization. And Mappo's like, or they could have been really dumb and just focused on learning too much. On and the that's minutia, how they yeah. Just like that's a that's an interesting point of view on both ends. Yeah. Arguing over scenes, arguing over seeds in the wind while barbarians batter down the gates. Indolence takes many forms, but it comes to every civilization that has outlived its will. And I feel like he and Icarium can speak with some authority on that since they've been around for a few thousand years. Yeah, just a few. But yeah, no, I thought the argument is interesting though, on both ends, because it makes me think like, could have been like rich and powerful, and they just like just a globe wrote on stuff like that just to be like hey we can do this yeah or was it they they truly valued i guess books and trying to preserve stuff that much or something which is kind of fun to think about yep and uh mapo and Akarium leave to explore the temple and we see that one of servant's arms is different from the other oh yeah you get the big 
muscly one and the weird looking one. Yeah, the like pink one. Like the raw pink or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's like, is he making soup? <laughs> nope. Nope. Soup's over there. That's laundry. Food's over there. Yeah. I was like, so that Ma- sounds like Mapo soup. sees his sweat dripping into the cauldron and he's like, I think I'll pass on the soup. That's the laundry. Yeah. No, that was it reminded me of washing clothes by hand. I was like, ah, it sounds miserable. Not fun at all. No, not great. Which uh servant doesn't say anything though. He's like a mute. Yeah, he doesn't say anything. But Icarium Ikeri- says it seems that he's turned a deaf ear to us by his master's command, I'd warrant. Yeah. They pierced like wringing out the clothes for some reason. <laughs> like with the boiling hot water still, not cooling it off or anything. Yep. He's like what a another strange dude. They make a good pair. <laughs> I feel like almost everyone in Malazan is strange. It's true. Adds more of like the... I gotta give it to Erickson. Adds more to his uh, ability to write such different characters for the most part. Adds some unique traits to everyone. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, thinking back to book one and this book so far, it's a pretty big cast of characters. And for the most part, you can distinguish each one. Like, you could... I don't remember all the names, but you could say a name and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember him. He's yeah, uh, He could, does this, this, and this. I Yeah, I could say a name and maybe like a basic thing about them and you would remember who it was. Yeah. Like Fiddler's the expert demolitions guy. And you got Krupp, the weirdo, without any <laughs> humility. Who speaks in the first, or not first person, third person. Exactly. I always get that messed up. Yeah, that's... This is the only series where I feel like I actually remember the majority of the characters and like events that happen. There's mm-hmm. a joke in the Wheel of Time community that as you get into the series, there are 50 S names and they're all very similar and it's impossible to keep track. So it's yeah. kind of a refreshing change of pace to have everyone be so different. I know. You know, there's a total sidetrack though. I was thinking we need like Krupp and Terry from Brooklyn Nine-Nine to talk. So all you get is just third person (laughs) referrals. Terry gets annoyed by Jake Peralta. How do you think he would do with Krupp? Terry loves yogurt. Well, Krupp loves goat milk. No, it it wouldn't be Krupp. It would be the magnanimous Krupp does agree with your assessment of, (laughs) of this yogurt, which is in fact bacteria. Oh, yeah, it's true. That's how Krupp would say it. But Krupp mostly enjoys yogurt when it is laid over a delicacy. Exactly. Imagine Terry in one of it, those dreams. It'd be so funny. Yeah, I I bet almost none of our listeners are going to get that. But Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a hilarious cop show. I know. That you should For those, all go watch. Those of you that do listen and get that <laughs> reference. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. Just a side note. Um, just maybe this is a draw for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Maybe not. But the auditions for Brooklyn Nine-Nine were throw people in a room with Andy Samberg to improv and see who survived. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's he's really good friends with like the head writer. And so he was oh. guaranteed from the yeah first casting things. And so their auditions were like, hey. Can you uh, actually like do a scene with Andy Samberg? That's why they no, just all such great chemistry. Yep. 
too bad it's not the same level of chemistry that uh too bad i mean it's too bad crocus and absolute don't have that same level of chemistry <laughs> i mean not everyone can have fiddler and kalam's level of chemistry where they can literally communicate with just their eyes i know they're just that that good that experienced yep. no one needs asl when you got isl i sign language yeah, I mean, I lived next door uh, until I was like 14. I lived next door to a guy that was in, he was a three-time veteran of Afghanistan. And he straight up told me once, like, obviously I love my wife more, but in many ways I'm closer to the guys that were in my squads than I am to my wife. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know. Anyways, shall we move on to chapter four? Yeah. Enough of that We've talked for a long time, but we still have a lot to go. Oh, I know. Chapter four. Fellison watches the aftermath of a collapsed mine shaft. She was spiraling further and further down into Durhang use and lets Beneth offer her body to anyone. The same guard that spoke with her and Beneth earlier approaches, telling her to find the rest of the Dewaker's quote, but she just offers him her body. Beneth takes her to see Captain Sawark about and offer her as a favor to gain information about Bowden's arrest. When the captain hears when Fellison arrive, his face pales. Bowden drags Felicin into an alley after the meeting and confronts her about it, beating her after she tells him a fake story. She wakes up in her own bed with Heberich tending to her. Bowden escaped jail, killed some guards, and set some buildings on fire before hiding in the pit somewhere. Felicin says that she wants to go back to Beneth. Kalam is caught in the middle of a sandstorm and takes refuge at a Malazan keep. The sergeant is suspicious of him until Kalam takes him to one side and shows him his old clawmaster pendant. Two more travelers arrive, having been stung by the chigger fleas that Kalam avoided earlier. A merchant's wife attempts a reading of the Deck of Dragons, but Kalam exposes her when she lays Obelisk, which is an inactive card in Seven Cities. She flings the cards at Kalam in a rage, and they fall into a pattern. The Assassin of Shadow, surrounded by death, and Kalam knows that the Assassin is him. After Kalam leaves, the two Red Blades kill everyone in the keep before following him. Mapo and Akarium find a chamber with tree trunk pillars and images carved into the floor that are defaced by claw marks. The place feels similar to, yet different, from Kurald Galane. They realize that the gate at the end of the Path of Hands is here, and they leave to ask Pust about it. He spits out some nonsense, including the story of his staring contest with a Brokerall, before charging them to find his broom. Dewerker, along with Bolt and Culp, attends a ritual uh, with Stormo Enath. They are drawn into another warren and swarmed by divers and soul taken. Dewerker is assaulted by fire ants and bolt by wasps. Culp punches Stormer to get them out of there. Another chapter where nothing happens. Yeah, same. All right, next. Will we continue to make that joke about every chapter? Maybe. Yeah, they're just all so boring. Hey, we get more Fellison. Oh, geez. Uh, Poor Fellison. She is just spiraling down and down and down. Oh, yeah. It's like she's giving up hope at this point. Yeah, that same guard approaches her, tells her that she should remember the rest of Duerker's Excuse me. Uh, the guard tells her that she should remember the rest of Duerker's quote, and she just says, hey, ask Beneth for me. Yeah. Like, just doesn't even pay attention to the conversation, it seems like. Yeah. Because I remember reading it, and I was like, what? Just, there's a disconnect here. <laughs> yeah. She is very even in the meeting later with Beneth taking her to the captain. Yeah. She like she hears Bowden's name and she has to struggle to pull her mind out of its haze. You know she is far gone in some aspects. Yeah, which is really sad because I mean she's she, 
it's like I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to describe this because she's just at the point where it's like she just feels the only way to appease or get out of anything is just to like offer herself up. Yeah. It's like, no, this this is what you want. This is what you really want. Yeah. I mean, to be fair to her, it kind of has been her only way. Yeah. So far. So I understand. It's just so sad to see. You know, because, I mean, then we see her meeting with Bennett and the captain, mm-hmm. which, I mean, this is a total side note, but I mentioned this earlier. This is one of those scenes that I really liked. Um, the uh, like a descriptive scene and that was of the captain like it really oh. for me like it was one of those scenes where I took an extra second to think about and like build the visual image in my mind such a fun scene to read like the descriptions of the captain like his beard his hair his chair the book that he was writing in yeah like it just set it up so well yeah how his hair is all slicked back with oil and yeah it just sets him up as this like petty He's proud a, dude without ever saying it. Yeah, and like he's the he has like the soft spoken voice that uh-huh. kind of like has like it's one of those voices that's not like a like a passive. It's like a it has that weight and that power behind it, even though it's soft spoken. And um, it's he's not a very big dude by the sound of it. Like he he's a skinnier build is what I think it described yeah. him as, which I thought was interesting. And I don't think this is a perfect comparison, but a character that just sprung to mind for me that also has that like quieter voice, but still a lot of presence and people listen is Snape from Harry Potter. Yeah, that's a that's a good one where it's like, you know, he's in charge, just his presence. Yeah. And I mean, Snape is hardly ever in charge, but yeah, like in his classroom, he is in his classroom. He is in his classroom. He's the ultimate bully to make up for. The bullying that he received. Oh, poor Snape. Anyways, this isn't a Harry Potter podcast. <laughs> no. Um, but. but when uh the captain hears what shipment Fellison came in with, he pales and you get the feeling, oh, he knows who she is. Yeah, which is a rather unfortunate turn for her once some yeah. dots start to be connected. And it's also pretty clear that this is a pretty common arrangement of Bedeth offering girls to the captain in exchange for things. Because right yeah. after the, his face pales and Beneth could tell he doesn't want her, he immediately offers two girls from the next shipment. Yeah, or it was the previous shipment, right? Oh, yeah, the one that just came in. Yeah, because he's like, no, she's young. And he's like, if eight, if you think 18's young, then you're getting old. Oh, my God. Which I was like, oh, that's terrible. That's awful. And he's like, no, 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 no. She's like 15, 16. And it's like, yeah. ugh. It's gross. Yeah, I. it's rare that one single line makes me want to punch a character in the face. But that one did it. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeesh. Like, it, like, if you really think about it, 18 is, like, still stupidly young in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But, like, part of me starts to wonder then, like, but though, like, in this kind of era of, like, hygiene and time, the lifespan of some of these people, so I could kind of see what they're like 18's a bit older when probably your average lifespan's like 50 well maybe i i would actually think maybe the average lifespan is a bit longer one just because you've got so many mages and people that live forever and also magical healing is 
as long as because lots of people have to pay for it but as long as you have money like healing is available readily yeah but but still like it's just because oh god (laughs) and then it's also terrible just to think like bennett is like no i'll I'll give you two yeah it's like yeah it's not good yeah um so bowden takes her into an alley and what i will say is fellison on the quick draw comes up with an incredible lie oh yeah such a good lie and like just has enough details to get by to build the lie and then Heberick is quick later and confirms her story with Beneth. Yeah. I was like, that is, that's good. That was a good story. Mm-hmm. That explains why she came in with Heboric. That explains why she doesn't know a lot about like Malaz City or Uta because she was just from this tiny city on the other city on Malaz Island. Yep. And she was just in Uta for a bit before being shipped off. She did a good job there. Yeah. But just... he still he still beats her. Oh yeah, it's not like like a black guy or something. It's like legitimately yeah. beats her, mm-hmm. which is rather unfortunate. Yep, and she says that in the middle, she sees like his motivation and his face change from being angry about the story to just taking things out on her that aren't even yeah her fault, like just pent up like rage and aggression. Uh, yep, which is like not to say like. I guess playing a little bit of devil's advocate in some cases, but like, I wonder where Bennett's at at this point in his life. You know what I mean? Like he has control, but he doesn't. And so it's like, I wonder how that makes him feel like he has control, but he really can't control anything because he's still a slave on some mining Island. Yeah. I mean, I can maybe understand that. I don't think that anything that's happened to Bennett gives him an excuse for what he's no, 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 no. That I mean, I'm not exactly saying that. Like, it's still really terrible. That's what he's doing. Like, he shouldn't. He shouldn't yeah. be beating her up. Like, to let that rage out, I guess, or that pent up emotional, whatever. But it does make me wonder a bit more. Like, it's yeah, kind of a bleak... what's ha- what's happened to this guy. Yeah, it's kind of a bleak outlook on life. Because I mean, I don't think anyone's born just straight up like, yeah, I'm gonna beat someone up type of thing and just use and abuse people. It's like a learned acquired trait i think and so it makes me wonder what gets him to this point i guess yeah that is why he's the head slave because he beats and abuses and yeah the meanest of them all so yeah which i think paints a rather unfortunate grim and dismal picture of what life is like in this mining island yeah i can't imagine like there's nothing you can really romanticize about this no like this is just this is just terrible yeah it's like on the subreddit am i the asshole there's sometimes a verdict that's like everyone sucks this this it's not that here it's just everything sucks everything yeah circumstances have made everything to suck which i mean draws the worst out of some people unfortunately yeah um yeah and then fellison wakes up in her bed Heborak is tending to her Gives her some water, unscabs her lips, and she says that she wants to say sorry to Beneth and go back. Yep. He's like, oh, how far you've been lost. Like, you don't you don't get it, do you? Yeah. Which um, Heboric says, that was a clever story, lass, a foundling. 
Lucky for you, I'm quick. I'd say there's a good chance Beneth believes you now. Why do you tell me this? And he says, to put you at ease, I guess what I mean is he just might take you back. Oh, I I don't understand you, Haboric. No, you do not. It just, when I got to Felicin's part, I sent a gif in the group chat with the other Malazan subreddit mods of just someone curling up it like zipping up a sleeping bag and rolling onto their side and it said like pain because <laughs> Felicin's story never gets easier to read it's like series of unfortunate events this is my fourth time reading her story and ugh, we might need to move on because i might start crying if we keep talking about Felicin. oh yeah I and mean, i i mean for me it's like like i'm reading this i'm like oh this is just terrible but like i still don't have that deep of an emotional connection to her yet because it's like I haven't read enough to like build that. Yeah, that's fair. And everyone reacts in different ways. I'm just a huge crier in anything. I'm just more like I come from a very analytical perspective a lot of the times. It's not because like I don't feel for them. It's just more like I don't know what to say or how to react. So it's more just like, I'm sorry, that sucks. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a crier for happy things. I'm a crier on sad things. I'm a crier when, yeah. Like, I've teared up multiple times watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine when, like, super happy moments happen. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's just my response. But, you know, I don't judge anyone that doesn't have strong emotional reactions like me. I realize I'm a bit of an outlier in that I just... Yeah. I cry at everything. That's that's perfectly normal, I think, to have that spectrum. But I don't cry as much for real-life stuff. And I think what I've realized is I cry in fiction for fictional things because I don't cry in real life. I don't know. I'm no psychologist. Did you have any thoughts on Bowden? He escaped jail, killed like three guards and he's hiding Let's in the go. pit somewhere and they can't find him. It's just wild to think about. Like, I, I don't know how big this Island is like, but they talk about some desert or I don't know. Yeah. Well, he, they suspect that he hasn't even left like the mining pit. No, that that's what I mean. So it's like this this feels like a very small space. And so I think it's wild to think like that he's able to hide like that. That's pretty it's pretty impressive. And the fact that he escaped like that is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm thinking I just tried Googling how big is Skull Cup and Malazan. I couldn't find any answers, but I'm thinking at most it's probably a few square miles. Yeah. I mean, don't they talk about some desert that they try to escape through on the island or? Yeah, like above, once you escape the pit, it's just desert across like the rest of the island. Okay, okay. So it's so big they, enough to have They're kind desert. of out in the middle of nowhere. The mm-hmm. nearest city, I think they say, is like a week's walk away, something like that. A week, 10 days, something like that. So the the island has two cities, like it has another like civilized area then. Yes, yeah, so there. If you okay. look at the map in the front, uh, the mining camp this. on the right side of the map, uh, there's a whole island that's labeled Otateral Desert. If you're looking at the one that shows all of seven cities, mm-hmm. uh, where are we looking at? The bottom left, the top. Uh, so the right side, there's a whole island that's labeled Otateral Desert. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, so there's somewhere in the middle of that. And then the city that Felison mentions that it's like a week's work, a week's travel, or how I don't know if she gives a distance or how many days it would take, but 
Yeah. That city is Dosen Pali on the gotcha. southern coast. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, quite a while away. Okay, this is a lot closer connected, though, than I initially thought. Yeah. I, d- I didn't look at this recently enough to... Okay, this makes yeah. a lot. Yeah, and then Dewaker and Coltane in the army are in Hisar, right across that narrow strait from Dosen Pali. And then Fiddler and Kalam and them all just left Erlatan, which is closer to the center. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So kind of all over the place. Yeah. Still a really cool map. I love the little sea creature in the bottom. Let's see. Anything else about those fellas in sections? Nah, just that we're going to see more crap happen. Or... Yep. So I, I, remember, I remember getting to chapter three last week. Is going back a little bit, just mm-hmm. reading Felicin's opening, and I was like, oh dear. Oh yeah, the first paragraph makes it very clear that things are not going uh, great. Oh yeah, I was like, this is this is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So then, if we want to move on, next we've got Kalam. Uh, he gets caught up in a sandstorm and takes refuge at a Malazan keep to get out of it. Shows his old claw master pendant to the sergeant to escape suspicion, which is kind of badass. Oh, yeah. He's just like, this is my credentials. He's like, don't tell anyone. But this is just how this works. He's like, yeah, you got it. You got it. What are, what, what are we supposed to do? He's like, don't worry about it. I got my own thing to worry about. Yeah, because the sergeant is like, so you look like you're from seven cities. You're on your own. I'm suspicious. And Kalam is like, come over here. So uh, I'm actually one of the highest positions in the Empire that you can be. So yep. shut up and sit down. Don't you dare question me. Yep. Well, I, think, I think it's funny about this this interaction, though, in this this scene. Because we see the other caravan people come in. Or the, the people that like, get hit by the bugs. And they're all talking about, where can I get a beer? Yeah. <laughs> like, Along with outs from across the room. He charges for that. They're like... Yeah, what do you expect? This isn't some tavern. He's like... Yeah, well, so the two travelers that got there that were bitten by the fleas are the two red blades that kill everyone later. Oh, that's right. I was trying to piece together who they were. I can't remember. Um, And then a merchant's wife attempts a reading of the Deck of Dragons, and she lays down Obelisk, which Kalam immediately points her out as a fraud. He's like, you fraud, you don't know what you're talking about. And she's just like, because at first she's like just trying to win him over, like with, I don't even know what, like the way she's looking at him. Because isn't she the one with like the really crappy makeup as well? Yeah. He's like, she doesn't look good. She doesn't know what she's doing. And then she doesn't. Nope. And he he turns to the other guards and is like, I'm sure she was going to promise you heroes born to you by the score and riches unending and as many women as you could ever want. Yep. He's like, you just got exposed. But then she throws the cards at him, like, angry that he caught her out, and they fall into a pattern. And Kalam instinctively knows that the assassin at the center is himself. This is one of the first Dragon readings. I finally started to piece together a little bit. (laughs) Sort of. I was like, okay, I at least know how this works. Yep. But he's like, so I'm an assassin, and I have the Book of the Whirlwind, which is going to unleash... The rebellion, and I'm surrounded by death. That's about as clear as it gets. Like I figured, this is where I was. He's like, "Yeah, this is this is all fits together." And then Kalam leaves the keep, and the two red blades slaughter everyone. Oh, that's what happens. I told it. 
forgot about that part. Yep. They don't want anyone to know about them. So, because one of them, Lostara Yo, walks out and she's like, did you check all the bodies? And he's like, yeah, no one's alive. You left not a single heart still beating, Captain. Yep. It's too bad. So, pretty brutal. Again, the Red Blades seem to just enjoy killing. Yeah. I, uh, that was interesting, though. I remember reading this. The Lostara was like, she picked up on the Deck of Dragons thing with Kalam. Yeah. Like, it revealed some things to her. Which was, was like, oh, not just Kalam noticed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that's unfortunate, but I don't think there's too much to say about that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not much there. It's pretty self-explanatory, but I just thought it was an interesting note. Uh, and then we get Mapo and Akarium exploring the temple, like the bowels of the temple, and they find this place that's familiar yet different to them. Yeah, the Akarium mentioned... It had the the feeling of one of the Elder Warrens. I'm trying to remember which one it was called. Earl Galane, which is the Tystan uh, D. Warren. Is that's not the original Tystan D. Warren? That's the. It is. Oh, it is mm-hmm. the Darkness one. Okay. Yeah. Because she, not she, Ikram, he was like, "This is uh this feels like some crazy magic happened here." Because then there's another spot as well. I think they mentioned. Yeah, there's a place with like images carved on the floor that have been defaced by claw marks and things. Oh, that is the place. So the place with all of those images, they say has like the flavor of curled glane, but different enough yeah. that they don't know what it is. But they like do real they do realize that the gate to the path of hands, which we've heard about, is right there. That's right, yeah. Because it, it mentions it's like it's like been a it's like a corrupted worm or something. Yeah. Which I thought. No idea how any of this works, but I was like, oh, snap, something powerful or strange happened here. Yep. And the gate to the Path of Hands being there is pretty significant. Because do you remember what Kimlock told Fiddler? I think it was chapter two about the Path of Hands. Isn't that where ascendants are made? Yeah. So the, the, the soul taken and divers are drawn to it. And whoever like achieves it will be like the god of shapeshifters interesting i forgot about that particular so there's not a god of shapeshifters right now uh not that we know of no okay it's kind of crazy because we see um we see some of the soul taking divers using a warrant to travel Uh uh-huh to get there i guess yeah so this uh curious to see how good old servant and uh Shadow Thrones acolytes gonna play out. Yeah, the priest. Well, you know, maybe that's why the Karim and Mapu were there. Yeah, well, I imagine that's why they are. But isn't it mentioned that they're trying to get to the Path of Hands as well, and they haven't now finally made it? Get I guess at the beginning. Yeah, Akarium wanted to search for it, or I don't know if he wanted to search for it, but they were going somewhere in Seven Cities and. Mapo says that, well, it's unfortunate that we just happen to be here in the middle of this like crazy convergence. Yeah. Like they have to be there, I guess, to do something. But Akarium just kind of takes any chance that he gets to try to find answers to his life. So weird. It's too bad. Amnesia is the worst. Yeah. Cause you can see he's an intelligent being. Like oh, he's yeah. very smart. He just doesn't remember his life. Which is so weird to think about. Like that disconnect. Yeah, dementia times infinity. Exactly. 
but like he can still read those old scripts he can still do all this stuff make connections but he doesn't remember being in a fight like a few hours ago mm-hmm. so it's like it blows my mind Ikarium is one of my favorite introductory like character things because you're just like what the heck is going on with this guy like what happened you're old so what happened <laughs> like shouldn't you be all powerful or something everything to be of an elder race i guess yeah um but then they go to tell Escarl pus that they found the gate and he he busts out some of his typical nonsense goes on another tangent as always I just I have to read this his story about his staring contest. Bokarala have small brains, tiny brains inside their tiny round skulls, cunning as rats with eyes like glittering black stones. Four hours once I stared into one's eyes, he into mine, never once pulling gaze away. This was a contest and one I would not lose. Four hours face to face, so close I could swell his foul breath and he mine. Who would win? It was in the lap of the gods. And Mapo says, and uh, who won this battle of wits? <laughs> look upon him who does not waver from his cause no matter how insipid and ultimately irrelevant and you shall find in him the meaning of dull-witted the bokarol could have stared into my eyes forever for there was no intelligence behind them behind his eyes i mean it was proof <laughs> of my superiority that i found distraction elsewhere <laughs> so he lost the staring contest with a flying monkey but it's proof of his superiority i know he's like i know i have better things to do and blunter the trail, determined in headlong stumbling and headlong and stumbling determination. He's great. I basically I love reading him. The total is like another weird thought, but like that staring contest reminds me of Sokka and Momo from Avatar: The Last Airbender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I was just thinking, I was like, wait a second, this sounds familiar. <laughs> Especially when they first meet and Sokka wants him for dinner. Yep, exactly. He's like, meat. There you go. What's the name of the monkey from Avatar again? Momo. Momo. There you go. Momo has a very expressive face, so maybe your vision for Bokurala now can just be Momo. Minus the tail. <laughs> and Pust charges them to find his broom, and Mappo's like, so what do we do now? And Karim's like, isn't it obvious? We go find his broom. Yep. You got to keep cleaning up this temple. We're going to have a big party here. He just had the broom, but let's go find it. I don't know. Any other thoughts on Karim and Mappo and that stuff? None right now. I can think of. Okay. And then we get to what you were talking about earlier, of the shapeshifters using a warren to travel. Yep. Duerker attends a ritual by Swarmo Enath. And they're drawn into another warren and just swarmed by shapeshifters. Oh, yeah. This was one of those scenes that definitely threw me for a loop for a minute. I was like, whoa, this happened. Yeah. Because uh, that was funny because um, Culp, like, accessed his warrant and burned all the ants off. You got um, Bolt uh, collapsed from poison or infection. Yeah. And the wasp. There's like nothing they can do as they're being attacked, but then they see like this big black shadowy whatever, and everything just goes to attack that. <laughs> yeah, and it's like tearing shit oh, just yeah. to pieces. I was like, "What is this madness?" It's like, it's a lot. And then uh, I, th- I think it's so funny though. He just punches the wizard to get out of there. Yep. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's what l- can you do? 
It's like literally the classic answer. Well, did you smack it to get yeah. your car running or your computer working? Like it's his ritual. Have you tried knocking him out to yeah. get us out of here? I do have to say, I think a diverse of like millions of insects is maybe the most terrifying kind of shapeshifter there is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we were talking about this on Friday for a minute, like um, spiders and stuff. Now they're just terrible. I had yeah. some terrible experiences with swarms of spiders, and I'm like, oh, that's just like a nightmare waiting to happen. So you empathize with the squirrel pust wanting to kill every spider he sees. Oh, yeah. No, I, I totally empathize with that. I hate spiders. Like, I've had such crappy experiences with them. I'm like, nope, leave. But it, I mean, it just adds more, like, more questions, I think, this scene of, like, what is this all for? Because he just accesses this warren thinking no one's going to be there. Yeah, it's basically like a major highway yeah. for these shapeshifters, which I thought was like, it, I guess it explains some things because, I mean, they're magical beings. Well, like, they're not always going to be present in the physical realm, I think. Yeah. And before the ritual, Sormo says that if you must think of this ritual of Warren as having an aspect, then it has it's Talan, which is the Warren of the Talan IMS. And then afterwards, Duriker says, like, is there a link between shapeshifting and the Talan Warren? Who knows? His, his thought, though, is like the Talan aren't using it right now. So they're thinking it's abandoned. And so the only thing and the Talan aren't going to police their Warren by the sound of it right now. So they're just all fighting it out. Yeah. Shapeshifters. Which sounds terrible. Just getting transported to the middle of a shapeshifter war. Oh, yeah. Sounds. Ugh. Sounds awful. Especially when you see the the. Like you have this big bear get just demolished by the weird black giant thing. Like, I don't know. I've seen a bear in real life. I can't imagine someone beating that up. Are you kidding me? I mean, if it's a gigantic demon. Yeah, it's true. Makes me think how big that demon is. It's a huge demon. Yeah. I mean, Mapo and Akarium took out 12 leopards by themselves. And I know leopards aren't as big as bears, but. Still. Those guys are pretty cool, though. I mean, of course, they're going to take out some leopards. Oh, hey, maybe this demon is pretty cool, too. I don't know. I think he's kind of boring. He got beat <laughs> up in the end. He got swarmed, yeah. Yeah. He's not as cool. Um, Any other thoughts about the ritual? No. Uh, I just thought it's interesting how necessary it is in this series to have specifics for rituals. Like, it talks about how he's laying out the sand and stuff and doing certain things to start it so i don't know i've always thought that's a funny i don't know if it's a trope or just like characteristic of magic like there's a specific setup that i always think is funny like no no, no we need our circle we need our magic circle <laughs> to access this or do this yeah so i mean like like i guess yeah it's there but i don't know i've always thought that's a funny thing to have i mean we we will learn more about wiccans and Mm-hmm. Obviously more about magic, so. Yeah. Um, We've been going for a while, and we might talk the longest about Chapter 5. So uh, if you're ready, let's move let's on. jump into it. Chapter 5. Fiddler, Absalar, and Crocus approach the city of Gadanaspan. They are stopped by guards, and Fiddler's horse bites one of them in the face. Iraq tribesmen offer them shelter for the night, but they leave when they hear of a Grawl tribe approaching. As they ride into the city, a young girl darts across their path and hides from six men chasing her. 
The three of them kill the men, and Fiddler sends the other two onward to confront the horsemen that come upon the scene. When he catches up to Crocus and Absalar, they are horrified by the hundreds of Malazan bodies in the square. Absalar says Kellenred only warred against armies, not civilians, and Fiddler brings up the incident in Arin. Absalar realizes that her memories are those of Dancer. Turns out, Kellenred and Dancer ascended to become Shadowthrone and Cotillion. When they reach the south gate, Moby rejoins them, bleeding. The Grawl tribe is chasing them. Kalam rides through Raraku, reflecting on how it shapes those that pass through it and how it gave the bridge burners their name. He is stopped by Shaikh's bodyguards, Leoman and the Toblakai. He delivers the book into the Sirius's hands and in exchange is given an escort, the Aptorian demon that Mappo and Akarium saw earlier. Shaikh opens the book of Drijna at dawn. A quarrel enters her skull and destroys her brain. Leoman and the Toblakai attack the Red Blades, killing many of them before they retreat. Tene Baralta orders Lostariel to continue tracking Kalam. Leoman and Toblakai will wait for the prophecy of Shaikh's renewal to be fulfilled. Best chapter. So cool. <laughs> So I which mean, which massive thing do you want to talk about first? Uh I mean I just like first off, going back to the horse. All right. Yes. We this can is talk about cool the horse, horse. first. Because I mean he literally bites the dude like face off. Which I mean that's a pretty cool horse. Like granted, port that's I feel bad for the dude. Like no one wants their face yeah, bitten. Even, off. even Fiddler's stomach starts turning at that. Yeah, he's like, ah, that's that wasn't very cool. But it's like you never see a horse do anything like that. The horse is always the one that runs away or gets killed or something. And the horse, like on its own during the race later, like bumps another rider out of the race. Yeah. I just thought that was that was a cool that was a cool thing. I I do also. I have to highlight Fiddler's curses when it happens. Oh, yeah. They were so good. (laughs) What does he say? Foul snot and rabid dogs anal crust of dysentery goats and then he like then he just throws them a skin of beer and is like and then all is forgiven yeah not one of you is fit to smell my horse's farts <laughs> that sounds like such a third grade insult but it's delivered so seriously as he's acting in his role and everyone buys it oh yeah it's like that i mean it, it does paint a really good picture it's like wow you are below that like that's pretty low and the stomach training action does not stop there because nope. they ride into the city and Yeesh. they see they uh, see some rapists going after a girl. And I love that it says Fiddler casually leans down and sticks his knife in the guy's head. Like they did not have to stop. And Fiddler is still like, oh, yeah, no. we're we're killing these bastards. Yeah, no, I was I, part of me was like, it'd be cool to see them get beat up and killed just because you're not allowed to well, rape a little kid. And then he goes and looks at the two that Absalar did, and she like she like cut off their dicks, and he's like, oh, "There's yeah. the girl I know." Yep, he's like that. She's back, which I mean, it's so cool. Like Fisher Girl Absalar, like still retains some of Cotillion's the ropes like abilities. Uh, yeah, and we learn something about. Yeah, did you see oh, Shadow yeah. Throne and Cotillion being Cohen Red and Dancer coming at all? Oh, not at all. Like, I don't. I, I imagine if I were to reread some things, I'd be like, oh. I have I have a couple of those from Gardens of the Moon to read you. But... Okay. Yeah. No, I. Yeah. I mean, going back a little bit, those all those guys getting killed was pretty sweet. And even Crocus got in on it. Crocus killed a guy. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was impressed. The whiny teenager did Fiddler it. Fiddler gets one. Fiddler's horse gets two. Absalar gets yep. two, and Crocus gets one. Yeah, I was so happy that like they they got him there. Like they didn't mm-hmm. move on. Like good on them. But yeah, moving back uh, forward, I guess in the story a little bit. You yeah, know, dancer. I like that caught me. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. The so the, it to me explains these guys are really young then in terms yeah, of sentence. they've they've not been around for very long but it like it confused me a little bit because i was like i thought these guys knew the hounds forever or something that's like the way it made it sounded stated yeah well we do see it we do see them from absolar's perspective and peron's perspective who don't know anything about them i guess that's true but no i, I think it's interesting that they become ascendants and then try to fight Lacine. Yeah, I mean, I had to set the book down when I read it for the first time. I don't know how Erickson did it, but like when you're reading for the first time, you barely know anything about Kellen Vett and Dancer, and yet this still feels like such a massive revelation. Oh yeah, oh for sure. Yeah, because I I was read I was reading it on the train coming home from work, and I was like, "Are you serious? That's who they are?" I was like, "These guys are young ascendants." Yeah. And like, it makes me wonder a little more like this is the God of shadows, the God of like, and then the assassins, like, it just makes me like have, there's just so many more questions, of course, but I'm like, no wonder I feel like Kalam and some of them feel a closer connection to these guys, even if they don't know, I don't think. Yeah. But it's like they, there's like a sense of like knowing or something. I don't know. But yeah. Um, so i imagine then like this is i guess probably theory but like shadow throne and the rope were leaders of this cult i guess and then became ascendants through this cult yeah i'll raffle that because there are some things later that might give you some more clarification on yeah this stuff so because i mean i mean it makes sense though like if you think about it like they became ascendants without anyone knowing shadows like hidden in the darkness i get i don't know there's a lot of connections there i'm like oh this makes sense but here's here's a kicker for you dancer became cotillion cotillion is a type of formal dance that people used to do at balls all the time back in the day oh that is right oh my gosh i didn't make that connection that's funny um and then now i think i'll read the so the first poem at the very beginning of Gardens of the Moon before the prologue is called Call to Shadow. And it says, The Emperor is dead, so too his right hand, now cold, now severed. But mark these dying shadows, twinned and flowing bloody and beaten, down and away from mortal sight, from scepter's rule dismissed, from guild candelabra the light now fled, from a hearth ringed in hard jewels, seven years this warmth has bled. The Emperor is dead, so too his mastered companion, the rope cut clean. Yeah, I would have never made that connection. Nope. Funny enough, the reason this scene exists in Dead House Gates is because Erickson thought he made it explicit in Gardens of the Moon, and then no one caught on. That's funny. Yeah, he did not make that remotely explicit. Although, this one, there's one more. This okay. is about as spelled out as you can get, and I am I intentionally did not mention this when we were talking about this scene because I wanted Chapter 5 to have the impact. Gotcha, yeah. Um, Tattersail says, 
It certainly seems that since its arrival in the deck and the opening of its warren, Shadow's path crosses the empires far too often to be accidental. Why should the warren between light and dark display such obsession with the Malazan Empire? And Kalam says, odd, isn't it? After all, the warren only appeared following the emperor's assassination at Lassine's hand. Shadow Throne and his companion, the patron of assassins, Cotillion, were unheard of before Kellenred and Dancer's deaths. It also seems that whatever disagreement there is between House Shadow and Empress Lassine is, well, personal. And Tadosil closes her eyes and goes, damn it, it's that obvious, isn't it? Yeah, that is that obvious. Yeah, now that you mention it. Oh my gosh. It's, I did not at all come close to seeing it. But once you know, once you know it and you read that paragraph, you're like, how the hell did I not see that? Oh, I know. But I mean... I could now thinking back, like I, I remember why it's like you're already so confused that like it's it would have been hard. Like if he wrote it with the technical ability he has now, it would have been like people could have picked it up a lot easier, I feel like. But no, that's just blatantly obvious. Yeah, I love it because right before Kalam starts talking in that scene, his expression changes and I get the feeling he actually knows. It's uh, it's kind of crazy because, I mean, you we see Fiddler like. They talk about it like dancer. We all knew dancer, like he was with us, type of yeah, thing. Like, like we were friends. We were friends. He trusted us. And Absalar goes, "Hate to break it to you, he trusted dancer, trusted Kellenved, and he trusted Decimal Tour, and that's about it." Yep, which I mean is kind of sad to think about. So, dancer was like, dancer was an assassin as well, mm-hmm. and so yeah. it makes sense that he would not yeah. trust very many people. No, I get that, but it's like to be Fiddler and be like one of our comrades in a sense, like even though the trust may have not been there is like now an ascendant and was with us possessing someone for the past however many years. Yeah. And is which makes uh which makes um Anamander Rakes uh quarrel with them just so funny to me now, thinking back. Cause it's like he is older than both of them. Oh yeah, combined, and like beats him up and is like, "You leave! Like you're not supposed to be messing with this." And they're like, uh-huh. "Okay, fine, fine, we'll leave." <laughs> yeah, and Amanda Rake's been around a long, long, long time. Yeah. Oh, this is like drawing all the things and adding yep. more questions. Yep. Crocus says they weren't assassinated. Either of them, they escaped by ascending. Into the Shadow Realm, Fiddler smiled dryly to nurse their thoughts of vengeance, leading eventually to Cotillion possessing a young fisher girl in it, Kokon. Yep. I'm excited to learn more about that. Yep. Uh, Fiddler thinks that now that the Emperor's been brought up, he thinks that the Emperor wouldn't have ever let the Rebellion get this far, that he would have answered the first bloodshed with way more bloodshed and just put a stop to it right away. I could see that. Yeah, what else is here? Um, super small thing. Moby rejoins them and he's bleeding and Crocus is worried and Fiddler's like, have you ever seen his kind mate? <laughs> it's a mess. Um, And then the Grawl tribe that approached is chasing them because Fiddler told them he was an outlaw. And so now the Grawl tribe that's following them thinks he's an outlaw and wants to take him down. I think it's so funny. How he manages to navigate that. But I mean, as well, we saw it was kind of fun to see Absolar like get all fired up. Oh, with, yeah. With the, the one group. I'm totally blanking on their name. Uh, the Iraq. The Iraq. Like, it's just funny to see her get so fired up and defensive and like just start shouting 
shouting and ranting and acting like a total naive bride or something. Yeah. Which was just so funny. Threatening to lift her veil and in Seven Cities, if you if she lifts her veil, it's like voicing a curse at you. Yeah. They're like, no, 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 no. It, it was just fun to see her be like that because after seeing her be so confused and timid for so long, I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, Dancer had to have been a pretty competent dude, so. Yeah. I mean, to become an ascendant, you had to be. Yep. The god of assassins as well. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. I mean, it's a dark god to be, but still pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. And now you understand maybe why Halam and Quickben had the idea. Well, she was possessed by the god of assassins. Maybe we sent her after Lacine too. Yeah. I mean, makes sense. I don't know. Any more thoughts on that? None right now. Probably the biggest revelation of the books so far. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Don't worry. We're about to launch into something that I think is equally pretty big. But Kalam is riding through the desert, uh, reflecting how it's called the Holy Desert Raraku, and it shapes mm-hmm. everyone that passes through it and how it gave the bridge burners its name. Yeah. I thought that was a really neat scene to read. Like it wasn't particularly necessary, but it was like a nice world building scene. Yeah. Which... Riding through just it gave the bridge burners their name because once they were shaped by it, they burned the bridges to their pasts. Yeah. Which which gives a cool meaning to their name, I guess. Um I don't know, it, it like a bit of a side note, this just makes me think of like stuff like the Appalachian Trail and all that, where people do that and it's like changed my life, you know, things like that. So I think it's just cool to see him reflect on that and be like, this is, this was like a huge turning point for us. Yeah. Uh, But then he stopped by Shaikh's bodyguards, Leoman and Toblakai. And Leoman, Kalam is sitting on his horse and he's like, well, I see a, a, he has the crossbow in there, but if he shoots the crossbow, I could just roll over my horse and dodge it and then throw two knives there and kill him. So I'm fine. Yeah. I'm at ease. And then he gets surprised. <laughs> yeah. And Toblakai sneaks up on him and Klum tries to like blame it on magic. And Leoman's like, uh, 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 no magic nope. involved. Your, your ego needs a check. Yeah. He got the better of you, which is kind of crazy because he's the guy that has like all the ears on him or something. Yeah. Seven foot tall dude that's, bulky enough to seem thick and wide and has a bunch like a row of ears on his belt yeah and he's like what are those mushrooms and he doesn't tell anyone his name he just goes by his race Tobla guy which is pretty wild which I mean this was like it was like such a good setup like this whole next scene and stuff because like it kind of caught me out of nowhere where I'm like oh he made it like this is the this is the priestess lady like she's just here yep she's here <laughs> He gives I was her the like, book. It's pretty easy. Yeah, I was expecting like some arduous longer journey, maybe a fight with the red blades and like manages to get to her like midway or like the last third of the book, not like uh-uh. first book in. Oh, here's the book. Here you go. Oh, thank you. It's a little damaged, but I guess that's what happens when it's this old. When it's a thousand years old. It's like, yeah, you should be grateful that just the covering is a little it's like yeah, a little I'm... broken. I know, which is crazy to think about. A thousand-year-old book. Like, there's not many examples of that in our time. And I'm thinking, like, thousand years old. That's a, that's pretty well maintained. That book there. 
I mean, when you have magic to preserve it. That's true. Magic is always the Especially answer. when it's a magical prophecy book that's meant to yeah. set off something like this. So why was it damaged to begin with? And that's the real question. Maybe even magic can't stop the turning of years. <laughs> it did enough to last a thousand years. That's true. And so <laughs> Shay gives Kalam an escort. He's like, no, I don't want an escort. I want to go by myself. Well, you're getting an escort. You this is this is happening. And it's the same Aptorian demon that Mapuanakarium saw crossing the desert earlier. Oh. If you remember that in book one, they see and it's got like it's got two hind legs and then a one front leg coming out of the center of its chest. And it's oh, got a, I... it's got a single eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loosely remember that one. Where they just kind of chat with it, right? No, so they don't chat with the demon. They just see it passing. And then Rolanderus, the dozen wolves guy, they talk Mm -hmm. with him and he says that he's going to go attack it. And then in this scene, they mention that the Aptorian has already fought off a diverse wolf pack. Yeah, I didn't uh, didn't make that connection there. But I mean, Uh, for all this easy buildup. Yeah, let's jump into the big thing that happens. Shaik opens the (laughs) book and boom, she's dead. I know. Shot to the head. I was like, isn't yeah, she? What, like did you, some... what did you think of this? I was like, isn't she? Well, it's the same reaction as her two bodyguards. She's dead. Well, yeah, she's dead. I know she's dead. <laughs> like, well, what do we do now? I don't know. Let's just wait here a minute. I thought the well, same thing. I not was before like, before they kick the crap out of the red blades. That's true. They beat them all up with a wood sword. Yeah. Nonetheless. And they're like, that was a wood sword. They're like, we know. We got beat up by a wood sword. Yeah. But I mean, I was like kind of stunned. I was like, this prophesied lady like, like is just killed like that. Like that's it. That's <laughs> that's it. She I was like, gone. There is like no climatic part to any of this bit. It's like, here's the book. Oh, thank you. It's a little damaged. Boom, dead. Yeah, no, it's not even like there's not even a pause in the writing or anything. She opens the book and I think it's in the middle of the paragraph that it says that a quarrel enters her head and explodes her brain. Yeah. Like it just all happens. Like there's no, like she starts anything. I was like, I was kind of stunned. Yeah. It's, I think it's one of the most shocking parts of the first two books. Oh, for sure. And so Leoman who has two flails, which do you know what a flail is? Cause I had to look it up the first time I read the book. Is this the different than the morning star? I think it is pretty much a morning star. It's like you've got a handle and then a chain going to like a spiked ball on the end. But smaller, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, dual wielding two of those, totally impractical in real life. Oh, yeah. But I love it. <laughs> it's so fun. And I just love how eventually the red guard is like, why are we fighting? We accomplished our mission. Let's get out of here. Yeah, their commander, Baralta, is like, um, retreat. <laughs> Let's get out of here. We killed her. We're all going to die if we stay here with these two, I think. So, yeah, because they, they knocked out one of their their leaders. And they're like dragging her away. And the commander doesn't even charge in. Baralta doesn't even charge in. And then he makes a show of like guarding their backs, quote unquote, as they retreat. Like, oh, I got you guys. Don't worry. Yeah, because he sees uh, them him like defending like a bunch of guys at once with these. Like they throw six spears or lances or something. And he and dodges he's, like, them all. 
he just like dodged through fluidly like it was a simple dance. Yep. He's like, oh, crap. And he like crushes someone's head and helm in with his wooden sword. Oh, yeah. I was like, that's uh, it's pretty nutty. It reminds me of the the wood um, and it's like species of wood in Star Wars that can like resist a, a blaster shot, I think. Oh, I don't remember that. I think it was like a minor detail in Star Wars The Clone Wars. Okay. But I'm, I've always remembered that because I was like, that's wood. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk about like Leoman's flails. Like you can't block mm-hmm. it because if you block it, the chain just whips up and over and hits you anyways. Yep. He's like, there's no stopping this because he like shatters one dude's legs with his wooden sword or something. Yeah. Well, I think he thinks like, so that guy's not as dangerous as the Toblakai, but he's still yeah. plenty dangerous. So let's go. Which is saying something. And so the Red Blades retreat. Um, Lostara Yale will continue following Kalam. And then yep. the two bodyguards are like, <laughs> then they have the conversation. <laughs> she's dead. I know she's right here. So what do we do? Well, she said she'd be renewed, so I guess we wait. Like, she opened the book at dawn. Like, I think it worked. She did what the prophecy was said to do, so let's wait here. Yeah, that's like, and then a sandstorm approaches on the horizon. I was like, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe that's something. But then that scene, so I have no idea. That scene, that is the end of book one of Deadhouse Gates. Felt like that was a more productive conversation. Yeah, I do yeah, as I mean, well. That stuff. So that was fun though. Yeah, I this is already and I like Gardens of the Moon, but this is already better than Gardens of the Moon. So much better. I didn't think that yep. much writing could approve that between much between two books, and it has. Decade makes a ton of difference. Yeah, it does. So I don't know. I don't have any other thoughts on book one. Um we still don't know exactly how far we're going to go next week, starting book two. I still need to take a look at the chapters. I've been bad at finding good stopping points for us, but I'm assuming it'll be three or four chapters again next week. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so with that being said, uh, thank you all for listening, and how's that, Todd?